0: Amen. We'll take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of Joshua. We come this morning uh, to one of my favorite stories in all of the Old Testament. Not if you've noticed, if you've been around here for a while, but if you will come here week in and week out, you'll notice that we tend to talk a lot about being saved. We preach about it, we sing about it, and sometimes, listen, sometimes we even shout about it. Totally missed your cue on that one. And sometimes we even shout about it. When it's forced, it just doesn't go so well. My dad used to even say that if you get up on a Sunday morning and you get dressed, and you go gather with a bunch of other people, and you hear a sermon that only mentions love and kindness, but doesn't mention being saved, then you have not even gone to church. You just went to a country club with a steeple on top. Every Sunday, we gather here for one purpose, because we know what it means to be saved. We even pray for other people to get saved. I mean, just this morning, many of us got on our knees and asked God to save people. And this afternoon at four o'clock, we're going to gather together in a room here, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about how you can tell other people how to be saved. When you come and join our church, do you know what we're going to ask you? We're going to ask you how you got saved. We're gonna to wanna to know your personal story of how it is that you were saved. We act like there is nothing more important and nothing better than being saved. Now, I don't know of any story in all the Old Testament that explains why that's the case more than the story in Joshua chapter two. It is one of the great salvation stories in all of the Bible. And if you have been saved, This story will remind you why it is that we sing and preach and shout and get excited about being saved. And if you think the whole thing is rather strange, and you have questions about why we talk so much about being saved and what we mean about being saved, then this story will answer the most important questions that you may have about what it means to be saved. Let me remind you what's happening. God is leading his people into the promised land that he promised them generations ago. Now the reason they have not already received this land is not because God was not faithful, but because the people have not been faithful. They have continued to grumble and complain and have not been able to receive the land that God was promised. But God is faithful. And this is the generation that is going to experience life as God intended for it to be. We will see at the end of Joshua God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's peace and God's presence. And God is leading his people into the promised land, that there they might fulfill God's purpose of making his way known to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 1, Joshua has been commissioned. He is the one that God has called to lead his people into the promised land, and the people's success is dependent upon how closely they follow Joshua. Joshua is a picture of Jesus Christ for us, that in the same way their success is determined by how closely they follow Joshua, our success is determined by how closely we follow Jesus Christ. The people are ready, they're prepared, and they're about to cross the Jordan River where there's all of these cities, all of these states inhabited by all kinds of nations in the place which is supposed to be the promised land. And so God is going to lead his people over the Jordan to inhabit that land and to drive the other people out. Now, it is here in which we get to Joshua chapter 2. It tells us at the very beginning that Joshua, the son of Nun, is here in an unfortunately named city that we're going to call Shittim in verse 1. You awake this morning? It says it is there that Joshua calls two spies. And he is going to send them into the land and here's their basic instruction go, view the land especially Jericho. Now right now we know that Joshua chapter 2 is a is a spy story. Now I love a good I love a good spy story. I love some of the classics like North by Northwest. I I love cool spies like James Bond. I like tough spies like Jason Bourne. But if I'm honest, my favorite spies are the Jacques Clouseaux's and the Barney Fife's. <laughs> there is no spy in history ever been better than when Barney Fife dresses up like a cleaning lady to go ensure the security of the bank. Does anybody you remember this? This is spying out its best. That's the kind of spy stories I like. Now, it is hard to discern here at the beginning which direction this story is going. Do we have the James Bond and the Jason Bournes, or do we have the Barney Fifes? I say, why is that the case? Because it begins with a genius move. Look at what it says. So they went into Jericho, and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, this is genius. Here are foreigners coming in to Jericho and they've got to find a place that they can go and be inconspicuous where it will not be odd that they are going into and there is no place it would seem better than this place. There are men going in and out of this place all of the time. It's not going to seem strange to go into the house of this woman who makes her living by men coming in and out whose house is in the walls of the city. This seems like a genius way to be hidden. But then the other side of it is it tells us that before the end of the evening, the king himself already knows that they're there. Good spies? Maybe not. It says, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. They know the very night that they're there, somehow word has gotten from Rahab's house all the way to the king. The king now knows that they're there and the reason that they've come, and even knows exactly the place that they're located. So the king sends some of his men to go to Rahab's house to investigate. Now you can't imagine what this moment was like for these two spies. When all of a sudden it's found out that the king knows that they're there, the king has then sent his men to Rahab's house to apprehend them, And Rahab takes them up to the top of her house and hides them under flax like a big pile of wheat. Sounds itchy, but if it works, it works. And here they are hiding under that flax, and they hear a a knock on the door. Most likely a a rather aggressive knock. And there are the soldiers saying to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you. He entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. We know they're here, and we know why they're here. Bring them out. Now, I don't know if the men have any idea at this point how this story is going to go. I mean, why in the world would Rahab risk her life to hide two men who have come in specifically to destroy her city? I mean, what would it be in it for her to risk her life lying to these men, knowing that if they come in and find the men, she and her family will certainly be killed? But let's just say she decides to do it. The question is, does she have it in her? I mean, can she pull this off? Can she stand in front of the king's soldiers and try to act like she knows nothing? Now, that's exactly the direction she decides to go, but the question is still out, can she do it? In a way that the men don't have it figured out that the spies are at her house. Now, it tells us in verse four that she does it in an incredible way. She plays it perfectly. Verse 4 says, she said to them, no, you're right. No, true, the, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the, the men went out, and I don't know where they went, and if you'll pursue them quickly, maybe you'll overtake them. Here's an Oscar-winning performance. I mean, she just knocks it out of the park. No, you're right, they were here, and I saw them. I don't know, I don't know who they were, and I don't know why they came, and I told them that they needed to hurry up and leave, and, and I bet if you'll leave right now and go after them, I bet you'll be able to catch up with them and get them. And that's exactly what the king's men do. They leave, it says that they go outside of the city all the way to shores of the Jordan where on the other side, 2.5 million Israelites are waiting to invade and try to find these men. Now, after they've gone, it tells us But the gate has closed in verse 7. The men seem to be stuck inside. They've escaped this moment, but will they be able to get out of the city alive and back across the Jordan? Well, Rahab has a plan. She is going to, in just a minute find a way for them to get outside of the window of her house, which is in the city walls, outside of the city, even though the gate is closed, and be able to, by night, escape and get back. She has the whole thing mapped out. But before she does that, she goes up to the top of the roof and has a conversation with these two men. The conversation is recorded for us in verse 8. It says, she comes up to them on the roof, and she says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. In other words, I know that you're about to take us and you're gonna win. And I know that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you because we've heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you have devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you would also deal kindly with my father's house, that you would give me a sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Here's what she says. She says, listen, I know what's about to happen. All of us have heard. We've heard the stories of what happened when you crossed the Red Sea. And we've heard the stories about how the armies of Pharaoh came and followed you into the sea. And the sea closed up and all of that army was destroyed. We heard that after that, you went into other cities and how you destroyed those cities. And every place you've gone, you've won. We know that. And we know that just on the side of the Jordan River, there you are encamped. and we know that you're about to come over the Jordan at some point, and you're going to take us as well. As a matter of fact, everyone has heard, and all of us are terrified. We all know that judgment is certainly coming. We also know that your track record is good, and we're confident that we're going to be destroyed. So she says, I just want to make a deal with you. I, I, I don't want to be a part of the people who get destroyed. I, I want to be saved. And if you would, because I've dealt kindly with you, would you ensure somehow when you come into this city that my family would be saved and they make a deal with her? And that's what they go on to say in verses 15 through 21. They essentially say this. They say, okay, here's the deal. If you keep your end of the deal, we'll keep our end of the deal. If you ensure us that you will not tell anyone, but you will remain faithful, and you will keep this to yourself, then do this. Take a scarlet cord and tie it outside of the window. And when we come in and invade Jericho, we will destroy everything in Jericho, but we will ensure that you and your family stays alive. It says in verse 21, She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. It tells us in verse 22 that the spies departed. They went into the hills and they remained there three days until the pursuers returned and then they made their way back to the camp. It says that when they come back to the camp, they say to Joshua, verse 24, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. In other words, they got exactly what they came to get. They wanted to get a report of what this battle was going to be like. They come back and report to Joshua. Joshua, it is as we imagined. Every single person in Jericho is trembling because they know that we're coming. They know we're going to win. Everyone is trembling at the thought of us. The spies accomplished their mission. Now, this, this, this is a great story. But here we are, 35 hundred years later in Bogart, Georgia, and I don't think, as far as I know, we have any massive armies on the horizon that are about to take us down, and you just kind of came to church this morning, planning on going to lunch afterwards, and you're thinking, that's a great story, but I have no idea what that story has to do with me. It has everything to do with you, because that story is given to us as a picture of what it means to be saved. It is a reminder to every one of us that there is a day of judgment coming, that God is on the move, but he is willing to save anyone who had placed their faith in him alone. The entire story is pointing us to today and a reminder of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all and King of kings, who is advancing his kingdom, and only those who are on his side will win. It matters because it tells us why you need to be saved. It tells us how you can be saved and it tells us who can be saved. Let's think about that just a minute. This story tells us why you must be saved. You must be saved because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. There is only one ruler and only one king of all the universe who is ruling all things and making sure all things happen, Ephesians 1.11, according to the counsel of his will. In Psalm chapter 2, it says all of the nations are raging against the Lord and his anointed, but God has established his king, Jesus Christ, and he will win. And all throughout history, people have tried to stand against the Lord. And story after story are those who thought that they were going to be okay if they stood on the wrong side of the Lord. Pharaoh ignored him. Goliath mocked him. The kings fought against him and the nations rage against him. Listen, and every single one of them lost. And Rahab knows at this moment that she is on the wrong side. She knows that if she stays here, she will be destroyed, that her only hope of being saved is to align herself with the one king who will remain victorious. Listen, you have to be saved because you must choose a side, and there is only one side that's the right side. Our staff went out on Thursday and Tuesday, I think, and participated in The Great Exchange. It's an evangelism program on the campus of, of UGA. I approached one young man and I said, hey, I, I'm taking a brief survey. Would you like to answer some questions? He said, sure. And I said, tell me about your religious background. And here was his response. He goes, well, I'm kind of a Christian. I looked at him right in the eyes and say, listen, I understand what you mean by that, but it doesn't work that way. You can't kind of be a Christian. I think about the context in which we live in and how many people would refer to themselves as kind of a Christian. There is no category for kind of a Christian. You are on his side or you are not on his side. You are following him or you're not following him. You are trusting him or you're not trusting him. You are in or you are out. There are only two sides and kind of a Christian is not one of them. There is a sovereign God who is ruling and reigning over all things, and you want to be on his side. God is sovereign, and God is just. He is a righteous judge, a holy judge, who in order to remain holy and righteous must punish sin. Now listen, we're going to get to this more later, but one of our questions that always comes up in a book like the book of Joshua is why in the world... Did the Lord come through all of these nations and destroy them in order to make way for his people? And the reason is explained for us in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 5. In which the Lord says to his people, "I am taking you to inhabit this land not because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness." Do you realize all of them had an opportunity to respond. They had all heard that the Lord and his people were coming. But God would not be a just God, he would not be a holy God, he would not be a righteous God if he ignored the wickedness of mankind. And so God is a just God who will punish sin, and Rahab knew that the Lord was coming to bring judgment. And all of us have sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, we have all stood against him and rejected him and rebelled against him, and because of that we are all under the just wrath of a sovereign God. You should be saved because God is sovereign. You should be saved because God is just. Let me tell you another reason you should be saved. You should be saved because God is merciful. God is a sovereign God who will advance his kingdom, and he will win. But he is also a merciful God who is welcoming anyone who would come in faith and trust in him. As we sing this morning, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Listen, he is righteous and he is sovereign and he is just, but he is a God of mercy who is longing for no one to perish, but all to come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's why you should be saved. You say, well, well how can I be saved? Well, Rahab teaches us that as well. She's a perfect picture of how it is that a person comes to trust in Jesus Christ and gets on the right side of history. You can see it starting in verse 8. First of all, she's saved because she knows the truth. Look at verse 8. She goes, I know, and it has to start with this. It has to start with knowing things. There are things that you must know in order to be saved. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Because we have heard, I said that this morning, you have to hear She heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And she heard what you did to the kings of the Amorites. And verse 11, as soon as we heard, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Listen, it has to begin with a certain knowledge. You do have to recognize that you've sinned that you have broken the law of God and all of us have stood in rebellion towards the Lord and because of that, we do deserve the punishment of a righteous and holy God. We have fallen short of what God has required. But you also have to know that it was impossible for us to ever meet the righteous standard of God. So God in his grace sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we could never live, a perfect life and then died a criminal's death, not because of his sin, but because of ours. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, it is possible for us, listen to this, it is possible for us to stand before a holy God as if we have never sinned because the righteousness of Christ gets credited to our account. You have to know that. You have to know who God is. You have to know your own sin. You have to know what Jesus has done for you. It does begin with knowing the gospel facts. Can I just say to you, It is not enough to know the truth. Do you remember what we read here? That Rahab is not the only one who knew the facts. It says over and over, I know that the Lord has given you the land. But then it goes on to say, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Listen, it seems that everyone in Jericho was aware of who the people of God were. But there was only one family that was saved. That shows us that it's not enough to know the facts. Listen, I guarantee you there are a lot of people in this room this morning that know the facts but you're not saved because you know the facts, you're saved because you have trusted and placed your faith in what Christ has done for you. You see, the difference in Rahab and everyone else who is going to be destroyed is the simple fact that she not only heard it, she not only knew it, but she trusted in it. She says in verse 11, for the Lord your God, he is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath, You see, everyone feared, but one person believed and trusted. She says, swear that because I've dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with me. She tied the scarlet cord around her window and let it be seen. There was all these things that she did in order to give evidence of her faith. And if you were to go through the New Testament and you were to search the word Rahab... You would find that in Hebrews chapter 11, she is given to us as a model of someone who has faith. Why? It says in Hebrews 11 verse 31, because she welcomed the spies. And if you were to read on in James chapter two, you would find James making the case that faith without works is dead. A faith in Jesus that does not work, that does not show evidence of faith is actually not a real faith. So if you believe the facts, but there is no evidence in your life that you are trusting Jesus Christ, then your faith is not real saving faith. And it says Rahab is an example of saving faith because of this, she dealt kindly with the spies. That true belief always works. True belief always manifests itself in the fact that because you believe this is true, you have then chosen by faith to step out and walk in the reality of it. This is why the New Testament tells us that if you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ, what are you going to do? The first thing you're going to do is you're going to step out in believer's baptism. Why? It's evidence that you actually trust in Christ. Some of you this morning need to be baptized. Some of you need to take that first step of obedience as evidence of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be baptized. The New Testament tells us if you're a believer, you're also, like Rahab, going to join with the people of God. You're gonna get involved in a church. You're gonna join a church. You're gonna be an active part of the people of God. You are going to begin a life of following Jesus Christ and there is going to be some outward evidence that you trust the Lord. And I'm so terrified in a church like ours that are all kinds of people going to heaven because think they're going to heaven because they know the facts, but they have not actually placed their faith in Christ as evidenced by a life that is following Jesus Christ. You have to know the truth. You have to believe the truth. And can I tell you the the third thing? If you want to be saved, you just got to ask. You got to ask. I love the simplicity of this Rahab asked. She she wanted to be saved. Look at what it says in verse 12. Now then please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt kindly with you. You also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab asked to be saved. There has to come a moment in every single person's life. In which you not only know the facts, but you choose to step out and follow Jesus Christ and you ask, Lord, I want to be saved. Reminds me of Romans chapter 10, in which it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You gotta ask. You can't be presumptuous with this. You come to a moment in which you say, Lord, I acknowledge the truth. I'm ready to step out and trust and follow Jesus. And so I ask you, Lord, by your grace, would you save me? And by the way, you're not saved Because you ask, you're saved because God is gracious, but there is no one that is saved without stepping out in faith and asking the Lord if they could be saved. Now, here's what I love the most about this story. Not only does it tell us why you need to be saved and how you can be saved, but listen to this, it tells us who can be saved. Who can be saved? Now, I do wanna be careful this morning because... um, I love the fact that we have children in the service. My children are here this morning, so I want to be careful, but I also want to be honest that Rahab is an immoral woman in a thriving, immoral business. Somehow the spies knew before they got there that this was the place to go. Somehow word was out that Rahab existed, and I have no idea how she got there. Now, wouldn't it be just incredible to know Rahab's story and what happened in her life and what happened in her past? What was it inside that led her to give her life to this, trying to seek the approval from all these other men because she had never gotten the approval from the Lord? I don't know. I don't know what happened in her life. All I know is that she's got some baggage in the past and it's manifesting herself in the way in which she's living. But... The truth is the whole storyline of the book of Joshua is that God is on the move and the walls are about to come down and in chapter one, everyone's ready and in chapter three, they start to move and to advance and for some reason, God interrupts our regularly scheduled program in chapter two to give us a picture of a prostitute in order for you to know that if God can save Rahab, God can save anybody. Like why Rahab? Just to remind us that no one is beyond the grace of God. Just to remind us that it is not about your past, it is about your present. Will you choose right now to trust Jesus Christ? What an unbelievable thought. And can I just tell you this, lest any of us have a bit of arrogance in our heart, all of us are Rahabs. Every one of us come to God broken. With all kinds of things that if anyone even knew, we would be deeply ashamed. Imagine the thoughts and the intentions of our heart all exposed. Let me tell you, they're already exposed before a living God. And he's still welcoming us into his presence by trusting in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, as you read the rest of the Bible, this spy story turns into a Hallmark movie. Now, I live with five women. I can talk about Hallmark movies much more than spy movies. I've seen me some Hallmark movies. I could, if given the chance, in 30 seconds give you the plot of every single Hallmark movie that has ever been written. You stick up flashcards of certain men and women, I can tell you exactly what movie they've been in and how most of them have been in nine Hallmark movies over the last 10 years. God saves Rahab. Listen to this. Rahab is then included into the people of God. So so as the people advance in to Jericho, Rahab is included into the people. Now, we find out that Rahab gets married. And she gets married to a man named Salmon, who was one of the two spies. And then you go to the book of Ruth and you find out that in the direct line of Ruth was Boaz, who was the father of Obed, who was the father of King David. And you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you find in this royal lineage of Jesus Christ, Rahab is there, that Jesus himself is coming from the lineage of Rahab, Now, the glorious news of that is that Jesus Christ does not simply want to save you from eternity separated separated from him in hell. He wants to begin right now taking your broken life and putting it back together again. Right now. uh, None of that was necessary. We could have just known that she got saved. But if you trace it through, it tells us that God was beginning to put her very broken life back together. And it's exactly what God wants to do for you. Moment by moment, day by day, God allowing you to experience through Christ life as it was meant to be. For you to no longer be giving yourselves to all kinds of things that you think are going to bring you satisfaction that will ultimately all disappoint. But at this moment, give your life to Jesus Christ, believing that there is nothing better than being saved. So can I just say, if you have not been saved, what are you waiting for? If you have not been saved, what are you waiting for? This is a fact that God is coming to judge all people and only those who are lined up with Christ will be saved. Why would you not be saved this morning? Why? When we stand in just a moment, would you not immediately come up, even if people think you might be saved, even if you're visiting this morning and come and take a pastor or someone here by the hand and say, listen, I need to be saved. Why would you not do that this morning? This is the time to call upon the name of the Lord. And if you have been saved, can I simply encourage you to remember what has been done for you, who you were and who you are becoming, and rejoice in a God who would save you and make you a part of his family and begin to put your life back together again. It is good to be saved. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.